Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. We are continuing a series that we started a couple weeks ago called Kings and Kingdoms, and the title of the series comes from a a song of the church that I used to sing when I was a boy, Um, and there was a line in this song that would say, kings and kingdoms shall all pass away, but there's something about that name, and talking about the name of Jesus. And the implication is that that every king, every kingdom, every uh, politician, every political organization, every ruler, every leader, every boss, they've got a finite amount of time to lead and to be in charge and to rule and to have a kingdom. But there's one whose reign will never end. There's one whose kingdom shall never end, and that's Jesus. So really what we're looking at during the series is all the kingdoms in our lives, um, the, the, the kingdoms of our own heart, the kingdoms around us, and how do these influence the ultimate kingdom? Um, Week one, we talked about principles of the kingdom. What does Jesus describe the kingdom as? Last week, we talked about uh, King Herod and kind of compared us to King Herod a little bit. And, and I believe there's a little bit of King Herod in each of us. Um, he was a king who wanted to hold on to his power, hold on to his authority with everything he had. And so last week, we talked about holding on loosely to our kingdoms, uh, allowing God to do whatever he wants with our influence, with our authority, with our, our time, our talents, our resources, all these things. Um, and, and this week we're going to talk a little bit about how we should respond, what that should look like. Because really when we talk about the birth of Jesus, we're talking about the installation of a king on planet earth. Now, Jesus didn't declare his kingship directly. Um, he allowed Pontius Pilate to do that. Uh, but Jesus will return to establish literal authority on planet Earth, and the nativity of that was in Bethlehem. Today we're going to start in uh, Matthew chapter 2, and this is a passage that we read last week. We're going to be looking at uh, some different aspects of it, though. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1, and this is what it says. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, uh, let me just unpack a little of this. What we see here is uh, this word wise men which we call them three kings many times, traditionally, but scripture never indicates that they were royal or that they were kings. Uh, This is something that tradition has told us through the years. Uh, But as we'll see, they may or may not have been kings at all. Uh, Probably they were not. Uh, But the word wise men here is a a Greek word magos, uh, M-A-G-O. 
O-S. And what it means is, it's, in this context, it's a false prophet or a sorcerer. Uh, it could be used as the word magician at times. But what we see is it's used by the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, and other cultures, especially from that age, uh, as a name given to wise men, teachers, priests, physicians, astrologers, seers, interpreters of dreams, soothsayers, sorcerers, anybody who dealt with things that seemed supernatural were considered this kind of person. And it was a pretty broad swath on who they might call a wise man. What we see is um, it says they were from eastern lands. And this phrase from eastern lands it's somewhat ambiguous, but what scholars believe, and what we know is that eastern lands indicates from the rising of the sun. So they, it wasn't specific about the nation or where they were from specifically, but it was specific that they came from that way, right? Uh, they came from the east. And so that's left it somewhat ambiguous for historians to try to sort through this. Um, a lot of historians today, and there are many, many, many theories on this, a lot of historians, well, let me give you this one. I read one that there's some indications historically that there weren't three wise men, there were actually 12 wise men. And the wise men were from China. And I could give you some reasons behind that, but I promise you, when you see the nativity sets, I've never seen 12 Asian wise men surrounding. Like, that's just something that's foreign to me, right? It's not, I'm not used to that. But there's some historical data that supports that theory. The most popular theory is that the wise men um, were part of an empire called the, the Parthian Empire. And the Parthian Empire uh, came to rise after the Babylonian Empire, after the Persian Empire. Um, the Parthian Empire occupies a lot of the same space that, uh, except smaller scale that the Persian Empire did. Um, it basically stretches almost to the Mediterranean and all the way into India. And so they had a lot of influence right in the middle of this, uh, of this Silk Road, a lot of a big trading route. Um, There's a lot of things going on in the Parthian Empire. Now, what we know about the Parthian Empire is that they were, um, they were very open to other religious views. So they had a dominant religious view at that time called Zoroatrianism. And Zoroatrianism, uh, we won't get into all the theology and doctrine of it. Um, if you've never heard of it, that's okay. I went to Bible college and I had never heard of it. Zoroatrianism is actually still a religion that's practiced today by just over 100,000 people in Iran and Iraq. Um, so there are still some people who practice this religion today. But what we see is uh, Zoroatrianism had a priestly magi class. So there was a class of people who were soothsayers or magicians or, or um, seers, and they were uh, in a different class to other people. And this is one reason why some people think they maybe have called kings, because they came from what might have been known as a royal class of people. And these wise men, there's some indication that they had relationship to, um, to Jewish people because they knew the prophecies. And there are some historic reasons to indicate how they were connected. But what we see is when they show up, they quote Isaiah to to King Herod, they know their prophecy. They know the king of the Jews is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So they're on their way. They're following the star. They're looking for the king, the one true king, ultimately. But the thing that's interesting to me is these men 
have no affiliation with Judaism. Um, Christianity wasn't established yet because Christ wasn't born, right? And these men were still seeking truth. They were still seeking what they knew must be right. And the same is true for us today. I indicated earlier, nobody really knows how many wise men there were. Uh, we say it's three, uh, and the tradition tells us it was Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. And uh, the, the way we know that is because there's a song, We Three Kings, that we sang when we were kids. And if you don't know that song, then you don't know your three-king theology. Because um, that's where all of my theology of the kings was based on, is this song. Uh, and I didn't understand it when I was a kid. Um, I used to think there was a place called Orientar because we three kings of Orient are, and I assumed it was, somebody should have told me, no, like it's not Orientar, it's Orient, R, right? Anyway, that's what happens when you form the theology as a child. There are lots of ideas, lots of theories, lots of, but at the end of the day, we don't really know. And I guess all this was a long way of saying, we don't know much about the kings. It would have been easier if I had just said that. So let me back up. We don't know much about the kings. Let me move on. <laughs> Matthew 2, 3 through 6 says this. King Herod was deeply disturbed. Remember, we talked about this last week. They said, where is this newborn king of the Jews? And he's the king of the Jews. He's deeply disturbed. Goes on to say, as everyone in Jerusalem was, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? So he called in his magi class, his wise men. And they reported and they said, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time that the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can worship him too. And he did not want to worship him too. What we see is he actually wanted to kill him. He was a threat to the throne and he wanted to have him killed. It says after this interview in verse nine, the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and worshiped him. And they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, gifts are an important part of Christmas, aren't they? Um, I think especially when you're a child, gifts are an important part of Christmas. Because let's be honest, we love getting gifts especially when we're kids. If you're a grown adult and you throw a fit because you don't get the gift you wanted for Christmas, you are still a child. I just wanna help you with that, okay? Ladies, if your husband throws a fit because you got him the wrong uh, color or the wrong shirt or the wrong size or whatever it is, like there's some issues. Pastor Dick will schedule an appointment to talk to him <laughs> for you. He will help. Uh, but gifts are important. When I was a child, um, I was very fortunate. My family um, blessed me, and uh, we were not a wealthy family at all, but my parents sacrificed to make sure that we had good Christmases. And, um, and I don't know about you, my favorite part of Christmas was about three months before Christmas. And 
they would come in waves. You remember when the Christmas catalog would come to your house? Does anybody, oh my gosh. I would come home from school and the Christmas catalog was there. For those of you who don't know what the Christmas catalog is, you, it's like if you, if you printed Amazon on paper and, and read it like a book. And a book is pages bound together. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, so. So the Christmas catalog would come in the mail and, and man, I would get to it and I would go in our living room and I would put it on the floor and I would lay on the floor, little chubby face tucked in my chubby hands. Some things haven't changed. And I would sit there and I would flip through the pages with my pen and I would circle, I want that, I want that. I'll take two of those, right? And then the closer you get to Christmas, the more we'd have to narrow it down because I'd have $27,000 worth of gifts. <laughs> and my parents would say, Santa's not gonna bring you all of that. And I would say, how do you know? They would say, we've got a sneaky suspicion. Something tells us he can't afford all that, right? And so I'd narrow it down. I'd start starring the things I really wanted. And if I was really desperate, then I would like highlight, you know, like we would narrow the focus down. And I remember getting some great gifts when I was a kid. If you're, if you're around my age and you're a male, you will get this. I remember the Christmas that I got the Millennium Falcon under the tree. It even made the noise like when you push the button on the back. It was incredible. I got Castle Skull when I was in the He-Man and I, it was at the end of Christmas, it was like, man, I had a great Christmas. And my dad said, I think there's one more thing behind the tree. And it was like, what? And he pulls it out. And you know, the, the best gifts come in the biggest boxes. We all know that as children, right? If it's a gigantic box, it must be incredible. And he pulls out this big box. And it was like, oh my gosh. And I tear it open. It's Castle Grayskull. Some assembly required. As a kid, you'd be like, oh my gosh, I want to play with it. And your dad would be like, give me four hours to put it together first, right? <laughs> I remember, I love those gifts. When you're a kid, it's all about the gifts. When you become a parent, you get excited about the gifts. Giving the gifts and taking care of and blessing. And, and it's exciting for dads on Christmas morning to there gets surprised too to find out what their kids got for Christmas. They're like, oh, we got you a scarf. It's beautiful. <laughs> so for dads, it's like double surprise. Like we paid how much? <laughs> we put a lot of thought into gifts, don't we? What would they like? What would, what would they want what would be helpful? What would be useful? See, this, I'll, I'll give you a hint. I don't like Christmas gifts that I would have gotten anyway. That's why when I was a kid, I hated getting underwear for Christmas. It was like, I would have gotten underwear. Like, my mom's not gonna wait till next Christmas to get me underwear. Socks, like, come on, right? Like, let's do something fun and something about giving the right gift and and seeing their response and seeing how they feel. And what we see is the wise men bring gifts to Christ. He's a, he's a newborn. 
Some indications may be that he was a little older by this time, but they bring him these incredible gifts. And if you're familiar with the Christmas story, you've heard gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the reality is most of us don't really understand these things very well. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were gifts often given to royalty. Historically, we see several instances where these gifts were given to kings as tribute. So for, for Christ, for Jesus to receive these gifts, especially as a child, indicate that they saw something in him, that there was some thought put into what this king might need or what he deserved or what was suitable for him. And they brought their very best gifts. See, these three gifts had great value. They had great inherent, intrinsic value, but they also had great symbolic value as well. The first is gold. And let me just help you with your Christmas list. You're never gonna go wrong giving someone gold for Christmas. No one's ever gonna be like, a gold bar? Ugh. <laughs> it's the wrong color, right? What am I supposed to do with this? And you're like, just give it back. I'll take that, right? Nobody's ever gonna complain if you give them gold for Christmas. Gold obviously has value. If you pay attention to markets at all, um, gold has intrinsic value, and it has through the ages. Uh, gold is a way to measure someone's importance, their value, their um, their, their cultural impact. Uh, kings would measure their success based on how much gold they had in reserve many times. And so we see this as a fitting gift for a king that these wise men would bring gold. The funny thing about this gift is at that time, it may have been the least valuable of the three gifts. If you were just gonna go sell them on the open market, gold may have been the least valuable, which is interesting because we default to that. We would have thought it would have been the most valuable, but it's not. See, gold has some symbolic value as well. Like I said, it was associated with royalty. So symbolically, we see this as a symbol of Jesus' kingship, of his lordship, that because of this gift, it's symbolic that he is not just a baby born in a manger, he is king. So he received gold. He also received frankincense. Now, I, this is another one of those that when I was a kid, it was a little confusing to me. I was positive that it must be related to um, Frankenstein somehow. I didn't know how, but I knew it must be. Now, I know I'm not the only one when you were a child you thought that. Did anybody else think that, or am I the only idiot? I'm the, okay, there's two more idiots in the room. Okay, good, that makes me feel a little better. I'm just kidding, you're not idiots. Frankincense, um, symbolically, it represents divinity and holiness and the deity of Jesus. Frankincense is a resin uh, produced by trees, and this resin takes eight to 10 years to produce. It takes a long time. They've got to wait on this resin. And many times when it is produced, it's produced in droplets that look like tears. And sometimes they will take this unrefined resin and they will make necklaces out of it. But what they'll do is they'll process this resin to create an oil, and this oil is what is used, uh, well, it's used, quite frankly, uh, in, in temple routines, in making incense and things like this. Um, in 
the Jewish temple, it was burned ceremonially by the priests in the mornings and in the evenings. Um, when it was, it would produce this, this uh, aromatic smoke, this white smoke. And so every time the nation of Israel would see this white smoke billowing up from the temple, they knew that it represents the presence of God. It represents uh, his manifest presence with us, that, that God is here, that God is for us. So when they would see this smoke, it was a reminder. When they would smell that smell, it was a reminder of who God was. Um, one of the things that we know is that the sense, one of the senses that's most closely aligned with memory is, is the sense of smell. I don't know about you, have you ever smelled something and it just instantly took you back to some place or someone? <laughs> my, my dad, like every other dad in the world, um, he would put on aftershave and he liked to use uh, Old Spice, which is the least popular of the Spice Girls, by the way. Um, <laughs> he would wear Old Spice forever. As long as I can remember, he would shave and he would put on his aftershave and it was Old Spice. I can promise you when I smell Old Spice, all I smell is my dad. It just reminds me of my dad. Uh, when I was growing up and we would go see my granny in eastern Oklahoma, uh, we would sleep on the hide bed in the living room and we would wake up in the mornings and we would, we would smell breakfast as granny was cooking. Now, let me help you with this. Uh, like every good breakfast, it began with bacon. That was the very first thing she would cook. And the reason she would start with the bacon is so she could cook everything else in the bacon grease. She would even take the bacon grease and put it, like she would take a brush and dip it in the bacon grease and brush the biscuits with it before she would put them in. We wanted everything with bacon, bacon flavored everything, right? Doesn't that sound like heaven to you? Come on now. <laughs> we can get Pentecostal in this place. And I would wake up in the morning and the, the breeze would be blowing through the windows and the, sh the, 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 the sheer curtains would be blowing a little bit and I could smell that smell of bacon and eggs coming. Oh, it just, right? And some of you are like, we're leaving right now. We're going to get breakfast. That smell transported me. It, it reminds me whenever I smell that. And this is what would happen for the Israelites. When they would smell the smell, it was supposed to be unique. It was supposed to be different. It was supposed to be something that would help them remember who God is. This smell would transport them. Now, frankincense is only mentioned three times in Scripture, once in Matthew that we just read, once in Exodus, and once in Revelation. It's used in the context in Revelation uh, talking about all these different things that are gonna pass away. It doesn't matter if we have all these incredible valuables, and frankincense was part of that, that all this stuff is gonna fade away. But let me read this passage to you in Exodus chapter 30, verse 34. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, so God is giving him instruction on temple worship, on what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to interact with God. So he says, gather fragrant spices, resin droplets, mollusk shell, and gabanum, uh, and mix these fragrant spices with pure frankincense, weighed out in equal portions. 
use the usual technique of the incense maker, blend the spices together, and sprinkle them with salt to produce a pure and holy incense. Grind some of the mixture into a very fine powder and put it in front of the Ark of the Covenant where I will meet with you in the tabernacle. You must treat this incense as most holy. Never use this formula to make this incense for yourselves. It is reserved for the Lord and you must treat it as holy. Listen to verse 38. Anyone who makes incense like this for personal use will be cut off from the community. God said, this is special. This is unique. This is mine. This is supposed to remind you of me, and that's it. So I don't want your house smelling like it. I don't want you dabbing it on before you go on a date. I don't want you to sully what this is supposed to be. What he's saying is, this is mine. This is supposed to remind you of something. It's supposed to remind you of me. So when you smell it, when you see it, it should be me that you think of in that moment. It was a good reminder for the nation of Israel of who God was and his nearness and his proximity and ultimately his holiness and his divinity that he was God and he is holy. So the wise men brought gold, frankincense, and finally myrrh. And myrrh is probably the most bittersweet of all the gifts. Um, myrrh was like frankincense. It was an oil derived from resin. Um, so just to help you with this, the way that myrrh is manufactured and has been for, for millennia is um, the trees that produce this resin that they get myrrh from, there are a number of different types of myrrh, a uh, number of different shades and colors depending on the geography and the soil and all those kind of things. But what happens is when a wound on a tree permeates or penetrates through the bark and the sapwood, uh, the tree secretes a resin, and it's myrrh gum is this resin that's produced from these trees. Myrrh is harvested by repeatedly wounding the trees to bleed the gum. So these trees are continually wounded and healed because the resin comes out. So they're continually wounding to receive this resin, to get these droplets, to, to get what they need to produce the myrrh. Um. Now, myrrh is most commonly used um, as a perfume, and it's used fairly widely in that way, um, but the Egyptians used it uh, as an embalming oil. So they would use myrrh in embalming, and what happened is the Egyptians were so influential that even though embalming wasn't as popular in that geographic area as it was in Egypt, um, the other areas began using myrrh as, a, as a, a cover scent. So when someone would die, they would anoint the body with this myrrh because it was sweet smelling and it would cover the scent of decay and death. So it was used to anoint the dead. At times it was used to anoint a king. But what we see is it was this sweet smell derived from wounding the trees and plants that produced this resin. It's interesting because it's mentioned a few times in Scripture. One of the places it's mentioned is Mark chapter 15, verse 23. This is during the crucifixion of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. It says this. And they offered him, he's on the cross, and it says they, talking about the Roman soldiers, offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, 
um, myrrh in the, in the Middle East is used ceremonially up to this point. And what we see in the Far East, though, in China and in that region, is that myrrh was used as a painkiller. And by the time of Jesus' death, this medicinal use began to, to seep into the Middle East. And so when we read that he was offered wine and myrrh, what they were very literally doing is they were offering him an intoxicant with a painkiller. Um, I know it seems strange to talk about the crucifixion at Christmas. I, I think it's appropriate, to be honest with you, because that's the reason Jesus came was to be a sacrifice for us. And, and the thing that's so interesting to me is in this moment, the moment that anyone, even people who don't drink, would probably say, yeah, give me a drink. I, I need to numb the pain. I, I, need, I need something to help me take off the sting of what I'm dealing with right now. Jesus refused. He refused. And, and as I was reading this, I thought about this passage in Isaiah chapter 53, this is in verses four and five. This is foreshadowing, it's prophesying about Jesus. <clears throat> it says this, yet it was our weaknesses that he carried, talking about Jesus. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. Listen to this, he was beaten so we could be whole he was whipped so we could be healed. In the English Standard Version, it says, and with his wounds, we are healed. See, I believe Jesus understood something that we would not have understood in that position. And he understood that my wounds will bring them healing, that my death will bring them life. So I don't wanna dull the pain because I want them to have all the life and healing they can. I don't wanna dull the pain because I know that my pain has a purpose, that my pain is for a reason, that my pain has a name, and that name was your name. So I wanna endure this pain. I wanna live through this pain. I don't wanna dull it because my pain means healing for people yet to come. See, Jesus endured that even though he could have had the myrrh, he could have had the painkiller. He didn't, he endured suffering like no one can imagine so that you could have comfort. See, Jesus, Jesus is our painkiller. His sacrifice on the cross is what allows us to live through difficult situations, painful days, painful weeks, painful years, his suffering produces healing in us. So he said, I don't want something that's going to numb the pain. I wanna feel every bit of it. There's the carol that I referenced earlier, We Three Kings. There's a line in the song that says, glorious now behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. So what do we see in these three gifts? We see gold, his kingship, his royalty. We see 
frankincense, which is indicative of his deity, king and God, and finally myrrh, which is representative of sacrifice. See, these gifts that they brought to Jesus were intentional. These gifts that they brought were thought through. These gifts that they brought were valuable. Some estimates, and I don't subscribe to this, but there is some estimates that the gifts that the wise men brought Jesus in today's value would have been about $100 million. Now, <laughs> I don't necessarily believe that because um, there's no indication of lavish living in scripture. But what we do see, we don't know the amounts of all these things that they brought to him. What we do see is they could have used some of these gifts when they fled to go to Egypt and they had to live in Egypt abroad to escape Herod. But no matter what the actual amount was, what we see is there was real value in the gifts that were given to this newborn king. Like I said earlier, we put so much thought into what we give. We should. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we forget and we go, oh my gosh, I forgot to get them a gift. And then what would he give them is a pot holder. Here you go. Now you can hold your pots. Thank you very much. You got the office Christmas party, you forgot about it, and you're like, oh my gosh, what do we have at the house? Right? Here you go. We re-gift stuff, the same fruitcake for decades just passed around person to person, never open, never consumed, never decaying, which is somewhat creepy to me. Why? Because we don't put any thought into it. Uh, my favorite gifts to give and to receive are the ones that have thought behind them, where somebody has thought about, man, what is... What is appropriate? What would they laugh at? What would they enjoy? That's, that's the kind of gift I like to give and receive. And, and the wise men brought a gift to Jesus and they said, what does he need? What, what does he deserve? What is right? And that's what they brought to him. So my question to you today is, what are you bringing the king? We put so much thought into our kids' gifts, Right? We put money into it, we invest time, and the reality is all the stuff under your tree this year is garage sale fodder. It's all gonna end up in a garage sale at some point. You don't believe me? That gift that your kid couldn't live without last year, do they even play with it today? Probably not. It's all temporary. We put tons of thought, tons of energy, money into these things, but they're all temporary. And, and what are you bringing the king? Are we putting thought into what we bring the king? Or is it good enough to go, well, I, I give him my church attendance. And sometimes I give him my church attendance. I mean, if it's not snowing, I give him my church attendance. And if I feel like it. And let's be honest, I mean, it's cozy in my sweatpants, and I'll just watch it online. I'll watch some of it online. That's my gift to the king, my attendance. Even if we attended church four times a month, multiple services per weekend, do we feel like that's an appropriate gift for the king? My money. I give my money to the king. That's great. And if you give financially, I want to say thank you. Because statistically, um, 
Between 30 and 40% of the people who normally attend our church don't ever give anything. So those of you that do, thanks, I appreciate it. But the reality is, some of us put an amount of money in the offering box that we would be ashamed to tip a waiter or waitress. And we feel like that's good for the king. Some of us would never leave a restaurant that they've gotten, given us good service, giving less than 10 or 15 or 20 or 30% of the bill for a tip. And yet we are happy to drop in a tip for the king of kings and the lord of lords. And we feel like that's an appropriate gift for the king. My time, my talents, my life. We say things like, we sing lyrics like, Lord, you have my life. It's like, yeah, but not really. Like, what I mean is, you've got a portion of my weekend. The rest of it is mine. Is that an appropriate gift for the king? Is that a valuable gift? Is that a precious gift? Are we putting more thought into the gifts that are temporary under the tree for our children than we're putting into gifts that are eternal for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? So what are you bringing the King? You know, one of the things that impacts what we bring the King is how we view him and how we encounter him. In Matthew 2, 12, the wise men show up, they worship Jesus, they bring these gifts. And then it says, when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Now it's clear what scripture is indicating, that they went home a different way than they arrived. But if you read it in certain translations, what it says is they left differently. And I'm taking a little bit of liberty here. I hope you forgive me for this. But I believe that when you have an encounter with the king, you're gonna leave differently. I believe when you encounter the king of kings, a true encounter, not just a religious experience, not just you're in the room when something happens. I'm talking about a true encounter with a king, you're going to leave differently than you came. There's a passage that we talk about in Growth Track that I love and I mention sometimes from stage. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. And the word new here in the Greek is the word kainos. And it means made entirely different. Something that's unique. It doesn't mean just cleaned up. It means transformed into something else. And I am telling you, when we come into contact with Jesus Christ, we are not just cleaned up. We're not just made nicer. We are made different. He makes us brand new, something unique. And my question to you today is, have you had an encounter with the King? Has your encounter made you different? Because if it hasn't, you probably haven't had a real encounter with the King. You might've had a religious experience. You might've had some good feelings, but at the end of the day, has the encounter you've had with the king made you different? If not, then we need to start there. If you would, bow your head and close your eyes. Lord, thank you so much. You don't wanna just be our savior, you wanna be our king. So God, today we abandon ourselves. We ask you to, to just be Lord of all. We submit our hearts to you today. God, I pray for those that are here that aren't in relationship with you, that don't know you, 
that they've never really surrendered their heart to the king. They've, they've never had a true encounter. Maybe they've had goosebumps. Maybe they felt good, but, but they weren't really made different. Let today be the day. They surrender it all. They abandon themselves to you. God, I pray for every person in this place, every person watching online, when we assess what we are bringing to the king, what our sacrifice is, God, I pray that it would be a sacrifice worthy of you. God, I pray that it would be a sacrifice that's thought through, that's thoughtful. I pray that it would be a sacrifice that is valuable and that is worthy of your office. So God, I pray, if we are bringing you anything less than our best, I pray the Holy Spirit would convict us today. Shine a bright light into our hearts today. Reveal that to us today so that we can bring you the gift you really want, which is us, our whole heart, our whole life. I pray that we would stop at nothing less than that. So God, have your way with us over these next few minutes. Speak life into this place. Now with nobody looking around, your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you would say to me today, Mel, you know what? I've realized today, I don't know that I've really had a, a true encounter with a king because I don't know that I'm really different. I've just added church attendance to my schedule. I want, I want God to change me because I've had an encounter with Jesus, the true king. I'm ready to submit my life to him today, holy and fully. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, you know what, I've realized I'm not really giving God my best. I'm giving him my leftovers. I'm giving him my afterthought. And I need the Holy Spirit's help in doing better. I wanna give my very best to God. If you could say yes to either one of those questions and you say, Mel, I wanna be prayed for, I want you to include me in this final prayer. I want you to stretch your hand up real high where I can see it. You can put it right back down. Yeah, thank you, thank you on my right. Yeah, thanks on my left, two, three hands, thank you. Yeah, thank you on my right, a couple more hands, praise God. Yeah, thanks in the balcony, I see you. Praise the Lord. Yeah, thank you on my left, I see you. Praise God, yeah. This is what I wanna do, I wanna pray a prayer with you. I'm gonna ask you to pray this with me. The word of God tells us in the book of Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And this is the thing. We don't have to be saved over and over and over again. But I think there are some important moments where we realize maybe we've drifted a little and we need to, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to correct our hearts, to bring us back into alignment. It doesn't mean we lost our salvation. It, it just means we're gonna rededicate ourselves to his purposes and plans. And so whether you are praying this prayer for the first time today or, or you are rededicating your life to Christ today, I don't care. I just want you to be in right standing. I want you to be moving in the right direction. So I want every person in this place to pray this prayer with me out loud. All of you watching online, I want you to pray this with us. Say this after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much that you gave your son to pay the price for my sins on the cross. From this day forward, my life is submitted to you. Use it however, whenever, and wherever you want. I am yours. Forgive me of my sin. 
and help me live a life for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause today. Listen, if you prayed that prayer today and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, Scripture tells us you're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so we want to help you take the next step in that faith journey. And so whether you are praying that for the first time or you're rededicating your life, please let us know so we can help you. Two things you can do. If you're here in the room, you can fill out the card in the seat back in front of you that says salvation. Drop it off at our info center when you finish here. Give it to them. They're gonna help you take the next step. They're gonna give you a Bible and gonna get you some resources. If you're watching online or maybe you're here in the room and you prefer this, you can simply text the word different to the number 94000. And when you do that, we're gonna respond back to you and we're gonna get some resources to you in the mail and help you begin to grow in your faith and take the next step. And if you're not in the Indiana area, we're gonna help you find a life-giving church in your area that you can connect with. So thank you for worshiping with us online today. We're so grateful. Now here's what's gonna happen right now. I'm gonna pray a final prayer over us. And while I'm doing that, I'm gonna invite some of our staff some of our pastors and some of our prayer team to join us here at the front of this room. And as we're dismissed in just a moment, I wanna encourage you, if you need prayer for any reason at all, feel free to come forward and let one of them pray with you. If you just wanna sit in the room and meditate and pray, feel free to do so. Uh, we just want you to be comfortable. Um, and if you feel so led, you can be dismissed, but please make sure when you do so, you do so reverently so that the people that would like to have prayer can uh, not be disturbed. So let me just pray a final prayer over you as our team comes. Lord, thank you so much for all the people who said yes to you today, whether they were saying yes for the first time or they were rededicating their lives to you today, Lord, thank you that there are people that are on the right track. There are people that are moving towards you. We celebrate with heaven in that today. Lord, I thank you that when we leave here today, we're not just leaving here in our own strength, we're leaving here in your strength, that we're walking out of this place in your authority, in your power, and God, I pray that we would carry the life of Christ with us wherever we go. Help us remember that your wounds paid for our healing, that your death brought us life. So God, I pray, likewise, we would carry life with us everywhere we go. Every person we talk to, every step we take, God, I pray that it would bring life to this community. Lord, I thank you for what you've done, and I thank you in advance for what you will do. We give you glory for it, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Guys, I love you more than you know. I'm so honored I get to be your pastor. God bless you. Have a great week, and we'll see you this weekend, uh, this week for uh, Christmas Eve. God bless.